Awesome. Okay, so hello everyone and welcome back to the Sustainability Time podcast hosted by the University of Victoria Sustainability Project. Um, I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the homelands of the Lokongan speaking peoples, including the Songhees and Esquimalt nations and the Wasanich nation. I'm very excited uh, to be joined today by fellow hosts Aaron and Alexa and our special guest, the Honorable Member for Sanitical Islands, Elizabeth May. Uh, first, a bit about myself. Um, my name is Emma Jane. I am a first year political science and environmental student, science student here at the University of Victoria. Um, Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself next? Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a second year student at UVic in the Geography and Environmental Studies program. Um, Alexa, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm also in second year in Geography and Environmental Studies, and I'm also a work-study for the UBSP. And then Elizabeth. Sure. Um, I'm, um, I used to, I got described, I got the permission from Sierra Youth Coalition when I left Sierra Club of Canada in 2006. They said from now on I could be described as Youth Emeritus, which is kind of nice because there's a significant generation gap between our wonderful hosts uh, for this podcast. I'm 66 years old. I've been doing environmental work since I was in grade 10. I've never stopped, but I've worn different hats um, as a waitress cook, then as a lawyer, then as someone who worked in government, then as executive director of the Sierra Club of Canada, then as leader of the Green Party, uh, member of parliament and it will be coming up now, May 2nd, 2021, will be my 10th anniversary as the first elected Green Member of Parliament. And I'm speaking to you and acknowledge territory of traditional, uh, I'm on the unceded, territory of Wasanak Nation, Haishka Siam. All right. So our first question that we have um, is, how did you initially get into government? I initially got into government by accident in that I was doing environmental law in 1986. And the federal minister of environment at the time decided he needed to have someone in his office who actually understood environmental issues. Now that may sound uh, absurd, but political staff that surround a minister usually come from their political party and often don't have any content information around the portfolio their boss holds. In this case, it was 1986. It was a majority progressive conservative government of Brian Mulroney, and uh, the Minister of Environment wanted to have someone on his political staff who knew environmental issues. And um, I happened to have gone to law school with a member of his staff, and I was also well known in the Maritimes, nowhere else, but really well known in the Maritimes for fighting Agent Orange and fighting pesticide spraying. So I initially got into government, which was a fantastic learning opportunity from 1986 to 1988 as senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister of Environment. More recently, I got into partisan politics when I decided that the horrific reality that Stephen Harper was our prime minister meant that we needed a really strong voice for the Green Party. And that's when I left being executive director of Sierra Club of Canada to run for leader of the Green Party. And being in partisan politics uh, was tough, remains tough, but I did get elected as a member of parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands 10 years ago. I guess this question's kind of redundant. So you never thought you would become a politician then? No, I hated the idea. Um, I remember my mom passed away in 2003, so I can always benchmark this by a discussion I had with her that I knew that 
I'd been executive director of Sierra Club of Canada at that point for 13 years, and that for the health of any organization, you need to have some sort of succession planning. And what do you want to do next? And I talked to my mom and I said, I don't know. I don't think I want to go back to practicing law. And I remember saying to her, and I know I never want to go into politics. So I decided to start uh, studying theology because what I thought I'd really like to do post Sierra Club would be to be an Anglican priest. So that was, uh, if Harper had never become prime minister, um, I'd, I'd be Reverend Elizabeth May and I'd have some um, Anglican parish somewhere, but it, it, uh, it was not to be because Harper did become prime minister and all the things I cared about were under attack. Wow. So a blessing out of his government. <laughs> <laughs> that was one way to look at it. It's very sweet of you to say, Alexa. Um, okay, this is our first fun question from an undisclosed listener. Do you personally think Justin Trudeau needs a haircut at this present moment? You know, I have, I'm indifferent to the question. I have opinions on everything, but so many things Justin Trudeau needs. He needs a climate science briefing from a panel of experts. So much more than he needs a haircut. Now, if those climate science experts want to give him a haircut, fill your boots. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and then our next question is about COVID-19. So we've seen um, that so many vulnerable communities um, issues have been exacerbated by COVID-19. Um, how are you like working within the Green Party and within government to ensure that vulnerable communities are protected during COVID-19? Well, what we've seen is just as you said, Emma-Jane, the, the pandemic has exposed for all to see what we knew were there, deep societal inequities, uh, so injustice and massive holes in the, in the social safety net. So Greens have called for uh, decades now a guaranteed livable income to eliminate poverty in Canada. Had guaranteed livable income been in place before the pandemic, we wouldn't have had the panic to roll out CERB. We wouldn't have had the problems where CERB didn't apply to certain people who thought, you know, all of the, the, the and I have to say, I, I give credit to the government for extraordinary effort in a short period of time to roll out more programs that protected more people than many other countries around the world. So the economic protection during COVID-19, while not perfect, is a pretty good model, but wouldn't we have been better off if we'd had guaranteed livable income first? The, the, the long-term care homes, we must absolutely get rid of for-profit long-term care homes, and we need national standards, we need the public health, and just as we need pharmacare. We needed pharmacare before the pandemic. Pandemic also raises the urgency around getting pharmacare. So I'd say what we're doing within the Green Party and, and, and our leader, Anami Paul, who's fantastic. And she talks about really clearly, I mean, her father died in long-term care in Toronto during pandemic. And although he didn't die of COVID, he died because of COVID, because a very easily diagnosed infection that he had that killed him, nobody in the, in the long-term care home could really take note of that because they were swamped with what to do about the patients with COVID. So there's a lot that's come to light because of the pandemic. And so we're part of a generalized movement that I think is very deep and very wide that says we don't go back to so-called normal. Normal was not good enough. We have to go forward. So we, we don't bounce back, we bounce forward. Awesome. 
Um, another question here, how are parties working together in the house to support a green recovery from COVID-19? And do you believe that there needs to be more action on this front? Well, I wish, Erin, that I could say parties were working well together to get a green recovery. Um, in the beginning of pandemic, uh, what, by which I mean a year ago, or March, April, May, into June, you could almost not tell on, we had emergency calls virtually seven days a week, Saturdays, Sundays included. We were on the phone with, with the government um, officials who were rolling out programs as MPs, we could ask questions. On many of these calls, you couldn't tell by what people said, what party they were in. I remember one call where I went into it with Bill Morneau, who was Minister of Finance, where I wanted to point out, we got to get credit unions lined up for this, not just the big commercial banks. But before I could say it, Pierre Poiliev, the conservative finance critic said it. So it was like, we were really kind of all thinking the same things at the same times, listening to our constituents. Partisanship has come back into it pretty much over the course of the summer, the We Charity scandal, yada, yada. We ended up seeing, we're now back to positioning and gotcha politics where everybody wants to gang up on the current government, whether they wanna talk about it or not, they're all gearing up for an election. And in terms of building back better after pandemic and getting rid of fossil fuels, I have to say that no matter what they say in public, the only party that's really solid in Parliament on this is the Bloc Québécois and us, which is weird, hey? Um, the NDP have not listed climate as a priority when they're actually talking turkey with the government. Um, obviously, they're more on side than the Conservatives, but I'm not seeing, in answer to your question, honestly, I'm not seeing a good cross-party effort to get to real climate action. And Bill C-12, which the Liberals tabled in November, is appalling. It actually, if not, if we don't get a 2025 milestone year into that legislation, it actually, and, and forgive me, because I said I try to keep answers short, I need to share that the notion of net zero by 2050, while that's critical, because the IPCC said if we hold to 1.5, by 2050, we'll be at net zero. They never said, if you get to net zero by 2050, we will have held to 1.5. And the liberals are using it. And well, maybe they really, this is why I said Justin Trudeau needs a science briefing more than he needs a haircut. They really may not understand this because I don't know how many government of Canada scientists are left who know anything about climate, really. The Harper change in our, in our civil service, change in the direction, has, I think, outlasted the change of government. But we don't have a lot of people who understand that net zero by 2050 is actually dangerous. If that's what you think you're go gearing for, and you don't think six significant reductions by 2025 have to be made, and even deeper reductions by 2030 have to be made, or we have set the stage for you could have three to five degrees Celsius global average temperature increase and be at net zero by 2050, and it will be too late to make a difference. Um, and so we're wondering, what are you currently doing in your constituency to address um, homelessness? Well, in my constituency, the, uh, we have, believe it or not, some of the per capita highest homelessness rates in the country on Salt Spring Island. We've got a lot of people living rough. We've got a lot of people who recognize uh, and it's it's we've been working really hard to get 
um, individual projects approved through federal financing, through provincial financing. I'm very lucky that half of my riding provincially is covered by Adam Olson, who's the MLA for North Saanich and the islands. So the areas where we're working, he can be working to get a chunk of money from the province. I can be working to get federal money to try to actually address homelessness. Um, but we also believe that housing is a right. Uh, we're working across across the country on key issues. Downtown Victoria is a whole nother issue compared to what it's like in, in Saanich Gulf Islands. It just happens that because the population of Salt Spring is only 10,000 people, that to have 10% homeless is, you know, is quite a lot, right? So we're, we're working on uh, solutions at the local level, as well as regionally, as well as nationally. And they all go from the point of view of the housing first uh, approach to housing. You need the wraparound services. You need to know that you've got a roof over someone's head, and then you can make sure you're dealing with other issues that are likely there, whether mental health issues, addiction issues. They may just be economic issues. You never really know until you deal with the individual person and get a roof over their head. And that takes funding and programs. And then again, you use the housing first model, you get a roof over their head, and you figure out what's going on here. How do we take care of this individual, give them the services they want and need, whether it's addiction counseling, mental health supports, uh, trauma-informed uh, counseling. There's, there's, there's almost always trauma. So that's where you have to really focus in on the individual and provide the supports they need. Awesome. Um, and then something that um, the UVSP has been doing a lot is that um, the majority of us like work studies and also um, the board are white. And so we've been really working to um, address different like anti-racism policies. And I'm wondering, like, as a white person, how are you personally working to combat racism within Canada? And how is your party working to address um, all forms of systemic oppression? Yeah, well, I have something I've noticed for years, of course, Emma James, but also within the environmental movement. When I was executive director of Sierra Club of Canada, we had an elected board of directors. We were the first environmental group because I worked at it to have a board that included Indigenous people and uh, people of colour and that had a, a, a program within Sierra Club of Canada on environmental racism. And that was back in the mid 90s. And we, we, we dealt with issues like the Sydney tar ponds, the biggest toxic waste site in Canada was uh, in the only community on Cape Breton Island that was black, right? So there was a really clear link there. So I, I personally, you, there's never, you don't stop work, you're not done. You have to constantly acknowledge your own privilege and keep working to diversify. Now in terms of the Green Party, uh, stepping down as leader of the Green Party, and now we have made history as Annamy Paul has as the first black leader of any federal political party, and of course, the first woman black leader of any federal political party. And we have a huge focus on ensuring a more diverse range of candidates the next election. But it's not just candidates. It's got to be the volunteer base. It's got to be the people on right now. We have the most diverse federal council. That's the governing governing part of the party is not the leader. It's the it's the council. We now have the most diverse council we've ever had. The, the president of the Green Party of Canada, Leanna uh, Cosmana Cantano is um, themselves um, also youth. I think they're 24. Uh, and we also have uh, the most diverse council in terms of membership, including people of color, a, a, a real diversity. So we're working hard on it, but 
we can't, we will not, we're way, way, way before the point of saying, oh, good job, pat ourselves on the head. No, it's, it's, it's an ongoing piece of work. And the intersectionality really matters, right? So you've got to think about where does somebody stand in this position in terms of their economic status, in terms of um, uh, all the aspects of diversity and inclusion that one can imagine, uh, the intersectional lens has to be applied as well. Yeah, very true, for sure. Um, some other question here. This time last year, many students were standing in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en and defenders of the legislature in Victoria. Do you think community-led actions, such as the people that came together at this protest, um, is more effective than within government for change? And due to timing, sorry, and due to timing and how long it takes to pass bills, et cetera, than in government? It's not one or the other, and one isn't more important than the other. Both are critical. So I would say, what kind of influence could I have had in government the last year if I'd been prime minister? That would have been really good. Uh, but as a member of parliament, I think we've, I think uh, the three green MPs have made way more difference than whole caucuses of bigger parties because we're clear, right? We just we're clear. Uh, um, being arrested to fight the Kinder Morgan pipeline, would I say that was the most effective thing I did fighting Kinder Morgan? No, I think it was actually my closing argument in the National Energy Board hearings, which were really anti-democratic and really broken. But it, it all, I put it this way, every action anyone takes matters. No one's one action is more important than anyone else's. And the most important thing is to do something. That's awesome. Um, very timely. We want to know, was it worth it to get arrested for the TMX, in your opinion? Well, yes. Um, I mean, I, I I didn't have a strategic object in mind when I got arrested. I had made a commitment to Grand Chief Stuart Phillip and to Slayway Tooth and Musgrim and Squamish leadership at a big rally in Vancouver before Trudeau approved the pipeline. So before Kinder Morgan was approved, I think the rally must have been sometime in the fall of 2016 in Vancouver. Maybe some of you were there. It was a big, big rally. It was great. And one after the other, elected people were brought up on stage and asked, uh, I think it was Clayton Thomas Miller, are you, are you prepared to commit to being there in solidarity with Indigenous people when the moment comes? And honestly, I hoped the moment would not come, but I made that commitment. And so when I got a call in March of 2018, so lots of time has gone by, <laughs> March of 2018, I get the call, okay, um, this coming Friday is a designated day for people who are elected. Can you be there? And incredibly, I looked at my calendar and it's like, wow, I'm leaving Parliament late Thursday night to fly to Vancouver because I have to be in the <laughs> on a head table at a downtown Vancouver hotel for an event that finishes by 830 in the morning. So, yeah, I'm free to get arrested. So it's just kind of one of those, you know, I made a commitment. I showed up for my commitment. I'm kind of surprised how many other elected people who said they'd be there weren't there, but that's okay. Kennedy Stewart, who was then the member of parliament for Burnaby South, and I stood there together and uh, with a bunch of other wonderful, wonderful activists uh, faced arrests. It was way outside our comfort zone. It was hard, much harder to do than I thought. Um, it was that the judge hated me. He gave me three times the fine he gave Kennedy because he said I was a really bad person. <laughs> 
don't know. <laughs> so anyway, was it worth it? Yes, but clearly they're still building it. And they is now us because appallingly and unforgivably, Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau decided to buy the pipeline. So now we're up to a $17 billion price tag that's still plowing through indigenous lands without permission. And the next step is going to be the ultimate in cynicism. They're going to quote unquote, sell it to indigenous interests. That's what they're going to do. So then those of us who were ready to get arrested to fight the pipeline, which we must stop this pipe, we must stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And I'm trying to support the tree sitters who are still there and who are in Burnaby South, trying to support the protests that happened in and around Kamloops. But it's harder and harder all the time because of this. Uh, I think people are beginning to feel a sense of despair. So for the Wet'suwet'en protests, again, all this time has gone by. COVID interrupted some of the work that was being done to come to a um, uh, to respect the rights of the Wet'suwet'en nation in relation to that the, to that fracked gas pipeline with massive subsidies from the BC NDP and the federal Liberals. We have to, you know, I don't know. It's it's not a good answer to your question, Alexa. Was it worth it? Yes, but it's not nearly enough. And we have to keep fighting. Um, and then also kind of, again, on the COVID-19 front, um, we've seen that COVID-19 has particularly hit students hard in terms of economic concerns. And many of us are struggling now more than ever to begin to start our adult lives. Um, and for many of the SERP that we were given did not begin to cover what is needed um, to ensure that students can sustain themselves during these tough times. Um, what are you doing to ensure that students are getting the resources they need? Well, of course, within Parliament, we're working really hard to say, well, we, as a party, our party policy was to get rid of all student debt and eliminate tuition and give and have guaranteed livable income. So if those things were in place for students, you wouldn't have had to worry about CERB or anything else. But there's there's going to be a cost to COVID that's more than the economic cost. And I'm particularly concerned for this for young people who have lost a full year or more of educational experience of being able to interact face-to-face -face with professors and students, et cetera. There's a cost. Uh, we've lobbied really hard, Paul Manley, Jenica Atwin, and me, for more supports for students through this period, more economic supports, and to stop collecting any interest on student loans, obviously. But that's that's not nearly enough. So we're we're working on it. I've I've been, I mean, in in our calls that I mentioned that we had the daily briefings of trying to push people to do more. Uh, Greens have always raised the issue with the Minister of Finance of we need more supports for young people, for students, for international students. Um, I've, I've had gazillion meetings with Carla Qualtro uh, and with first Bill Morneau and then Christian Freeland. Gotta say I've got good access to all these people and I keep pushing as hard as I can. So for students who are watching this podcast, you've got specific concerns or you're in specifically in personal distress around a situation, um, your member of parliament's office should be able to help. So if you're Sanish Gulf Islands, contact me. But if you're not in Sanish Gulf Islands and your own MP doesn't get back to you, you can still contact me. We are able sometimes to find specific individual personal help for uh, constituents in distress. Uh, but we just we know the situation right now is not um, adequate. We are not adequately meeting your needs and we're, we're working on it. 
Awesome. Um, and another question here, what is one thing you urge people to do every day to help the environment? Do something, right? So some days write a letter to the editor, add letters to the editor, like conventional, like the Times Colonist, the Globe and Mail, the National Post, Vancouver Sun, 250 word letter, whatever strikes you that day, like Site C, how dare you commit this kind of money to destroy the Peace River Valley when we need that valley to produce food in the future? How dare you violate the treaty rights of Chief Roland Wilson and West Moberly? How dare you? Uh, or, you know, another thing that's very, very useful and helpful is staying on top of social media sites. Kind of, it, it's unpleasant. You know, I feel like it's weeding through the trolls and figuring out, okay, they've just, somebody's just put out something that's not true about climate science rebut that. Constantly educate people, constantly try to reach out and work with people to help them to understand that we have a chance to save ourselves. That's another key thing to do. If you've got friends who are beginning to feel despair, because the climate science, it, science is incredibly scary, and it's what's really happening. Um, I often say to people, I was talking the other day to a friend of mine who worked in one of the other environmental groups, not a political party, but an environmental group. She's saying, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know whether in fighting on climate action, I should say X because it might offend people who've been prepared to kind of say, Bill C-12 is good. We just need to strengthen it. I don't want to hurt their feelings if they've been one of the groups that says, oh, this is a bold step, blah, blah, blah. We have to strengthen it. I mean, people choose how they communicate. All I'm going to say is, okay, I said to her, be Greta Thunberg. Do you think Greta Thunberg worries about hurting people's feelings? Not much. We have no time left for anything other than speaking truth. But if you know somebody who's feeling despairing, take the time to make sure we don't, that that person doesn't begin to feel they can't work on this issue anymore or that they're overwhelmed or that they get depressed because we have enough time. We still have time. And every single person who understands how pressing the issue is, is so important to all of us. We have to hang on to that person. So if what you do for the environment one day is just convincing somebody you know that, that you love them and it's okay, hang in there. We're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. Uh, those, those conversations matter too. So there's activism, there's community, there's love, there's all those things as long as you do something every day. So like, how are you like ensuring students' concerns about the environment are getting to the government, like federally? Well, I have less chance than I used to since the other parties have decided I only get one question in question period once a month instead of once a week. Um, thank you, Jagmeet Singh. So um, I ensure it as best I can by being as forceful as we possibly can as a party. We need, um, you know, uh, I don't let Jonathan, I mean, Jonathan Wilkinson, I reach out to him personally. I like him personally, but I try not to allow them to get away with claiming that Bill C-12, the so-called Climate Accountability Act, is good enough. By the way, we all have a real opportunity to hold the Trudeau liberals' feet to the fire because April 22nd, Earth Day this year, um, Joe Biden, as President of the United States, is holding a leaders' summit on climate. Well, this is the moment to say, okay, I don't know if you know this, the, the current government ignored a promise they made at the Paris negotiations at COP21, ignored a promise that we would improve our nationally determined contribution 
our climate target, that we would improve it in calendar 2020 and every five years thereafter. We committed to that and nobody seems to be holding them to account. But since they skipped 2020 to improve our target, can we really, really hold them to account for April 22nd, 2021? Because there's gonna be a significant effort from Joe Biden and John Kerry and the US administration for countries to up, up their game, to say what they're gonna do in terms of a target and to be serious about it. So that's, that's where I, I won't let them off the hook ever. Um, acts, and neither will Annamie Paul. But our access to media and access to time in Parliament is a lot less than the other parties. But we do the very best we can all the time to get the message out that we are in serious risk of losing human civilization. Serious risk. I mean, for people who believe that we have to protect the economy, <laughs> there's no economy if you don't hold global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. You go above two degrees, you're already in the the flashing red danger zone of passing in passing past the point of no return in terms of self-accelerating runaway global warming. Communicating this to people, I can't tell you how grateful I am to you for the work you're all doing at UVic. Yay for the work that was done at UVic for divestment um, from the fossil fuel investments. Every step matters, but it's where we are so close to being out of time, but the good news is we still have time. So we just have to do everything we possibly can from where we are as loudly as we can. Awesome. Um, and then we have one, a question. This is from one of our uh, like social media, personal social media, Sathathan. Um, So they've said that you've done so much work to build unity on an ambitious climate agenda across uh, political lines. How can students do the same in their own communities? And do you have spe a specific approach to communication on, on this that's, that's effective? You know, just, I was just reading an advanced copy of a new book that has that will come out in the fall of 2021 from one of my favorite climate scientists, Catherine Hayhoe. And Catherine, is, the whole book is about how to communicate. And she says, you always have to start from, which I do. So when I read her book, I said, yeah, that's what I think too. Start in your communication from where you think that person is. Like figure out how to start from common ground. So imagine you have a crotchety uncle who doesn't believe climate change is a real thing. Start from something you think you can agree on, like you love each other and doesn't he is and, and what does he think about? You know? So start with where you can agree and work from there is generally the best way to get to a broader consensus. Uh, surely it's the case right now that I would I would say that for all of us, the old adage think locally act globally and think globally and act locally like they all they all kind of morph together we we have to not just I mean, not that it's a small thing working from where we are in our own community to affect climate change action is important but if if we only focus on what we're doing locally and fail to uh, really be politically effective, at the provincial government level and the federal government level, then we've then then we then we may miss key opportunities where we could have affected policy. Like for instance, mobilizing around this climate leaders summit for Earth Day, finding places where there's a there, there's a potential 
for political movement because of public pressure combined with media attention, those are usually the combination of ingredients that move change. Amazing. And another question from our listeners. Um, do you think the growth of electric vehicles is happening quickly enough? And if not, what can the government do to make it more affordable? Well, we do have rebates now for electric vehicles. They have made a commitment in the fall economic statement that, and we should see, we don't have a date yet for the federal budget, but the fall economic statement had a lot of commitments around electric vehicles, um, more capacity for plug-in stations. But we also have to bear in mind, we need an electricity grid that runs right across the country to deliver 100% renewable energy. We have to make sure that we're not using fracked natural gas to generate the electricity, just the way we have to make sure we're not using coal to generate the electricity. So we have to look at the whole package. We need a 100% decarbonized renewable energy electricity grid and we need the capacities for electric vehicles and not everybody should have their own car. It makes a lot of sense to make sure public transit is also electrified and convenient and reliable and looking at the recommendations as well on um, the inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, we need decent, affordable, safe ground transportation, probably by bus from the remote areas, I mean, we're about to lose, by the way, do everything you can to help Wilson's bus line. It's a local charter coach company challenged by COVID in economic distress. They do the regular service of bus service to some of the remote indigenous communities on Vancouver Island. And we're trying to get them not to go under, but they'd love to electrify. But in the meantime, they do vastly reduce the greenhouse gas footprint of transit compared to a car. So there's a lot of ways to look at electric vehicles. Yes, rah, rah. Um, and I think we're going to see the price coming down for sure. The more people that are buying electric vehicles, the more that the big automakers say, from now on, we're only going to make electric vehicles, the price will come down. Uh, but we also need to think about the big picture. What if you're someone who can't afford a car at all? We got to make sure there's bus service and improve via rail service and not have everybody dependent on a personal automobile. Awesome. And then we have one final question. It's kind of a fun one. Um, so we're wondering what you would tell your 19-year-old self. So you promised my 19-year-old self was already like me. I was already in campaigns. I was already fighting against that, you know, but I guess I would say to my 19-year-old self, my 19-year-old self had her feelings hurt a lot much more than I did. So if I was being attacked in the media because I was young and a woman and shouldn't get involved in issues, I used to, you know, go in my room and cry. So I don't go in my room and cry anymore. I'm kind of used to. <laughs> so if you can, I guess I'd say to my 19-year-old self, um, don't let the bastards get you down. And um, they, uh, the misogyny is a thing. Patriarchy is a thing. And they're going to gang up on you for the rest of your life. So don't let them get you down because uh, feminism and compassion and humanity and uh, embracing the entire universe, uh, including that the whales are our brothers and sisters and so are the salmon and the eagles and the trees. Don't let a bunch of misogynistic old white guys get you down. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. It was so amazing to have you. And yeah, thank you. Well, it's just I'm in I really 
for anybody watching this podcast, I've, I've been working with Emma Jane Burian and I, my God, and with Rebecca Gage, I see these young women your age are rocking it. And I am deeply, deeply, deeply grateful to all of you, to Ely and Nicole and Alexa and Aaron and this podcast and anyone listening or watching. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I won't keep stopping the work I'm doing because I owe it to you not to kick the bucket before this is fixed. Thank you so much for listening to the Sustainability Time podcast hosted by the University of Victoria Sustainability Project. This podcast was edited by Emma Jane Burian and the music is by Hook Sound. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, please give us um, a review. Thank you.